Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. My guest this week on Hot Takes on a Plate here on the Believe Podcast Network is a renaissance woman. She wears many, many hats, does many, many things in the food world, and I think we're going to have some fun today. But before we get to this week's guest, I need to do a little bit of housekeeping. First off, for the recent listeners out there, and there's a lot of you, thank you for coming on board. We've actually doubled our listenership in the past month. It's been fantastic. So thank you so much for that. And if you're a recent listener and you haven't already, please rate the show five stars, of course. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and feel free to leave a comment wherever you listen to this podcast. That's how we keep this thing growing. You can also reach me on social media at Rob Patron TV. Mainly I'm on Instagram, but I'm also on Twitter and Facebook at Rob Patron TV. And if you found the show recently, make sure to check out our archives. We have some fantastic content from pre-quarantine, pre-COVID days, where we were just having fun. I was debating pizza with my man, John Cesarano at King Umberto in Elmont. They were just on F That's Delicious the other night. Shout out to them. Debating tacos with Joanna Herrera, my good friend over at Mariachi Mexico. Fantastic Mexican place. She had just gotten back from Mexico when we had that debate, and she knows way more about tacos than I do. That was a lot of fun. Burgers with my good friend, George Motes. America's foremost hamburger expert. Again, I like to bring people on that know more than me. It's more fun. Uh, also, great conversations with Frankie Salenza, who was just nominated for a daytime Emmy. Congrats to my friend Frankie Salenza. Dale Talde, got a great restaurant, Goose Feather. Of course, you may also know him from Top Chef. Christian Petroni, Food Network. Also, Fortina, Kushbu Shah, Food and Wine. Jonathan Lemire, MSNBC. The list goes on and on, so just go back. When you got time, listen to the archives. Now, of course, we have a fantastic guest every week. We have one this week as well. Her name is Maricel Salazar. And like I said before, she does everything one can do in the food world. She writes, hosts TV shows, does food photography, runs social media accounts. Maricel, first off, thank you for coming on Hot Takes on a Plate. Thank you for having me. And, you know, also just thank you for making this. I've, it's so fun. I love listening to you your episodes every week, you know, your most recent one with Andrew Friedman, Christian Petroni, you, you know, I really enjoyed Frankie Salenza, you know, struggle meals. Like it, it's great. I love it as a listener and to be on a, on as a guest is, is huge. Well, you've earned your way on. You do a lot of things at, like I mentioned, <laughs> uh, hosting TV shows, writing, food photography, social media, renaissance yeah. woman. And I'm curious, in doing so many things, was that a conscious decision or did certain opportunities lead to other things? It's It was the, the latter, you know. So I started off, you know, around seven plus years ago as a food writer, you know, in a past life, I was actually in management consulting and a web analyst. Um, but when I began my work as a food journalist, in my mind, it was, was going to be all food journalists. You know, I was the, the, the writer behind the screen. My job was to do the storytelling of other people. I had zero intentions of being a social media influencer, being a television host, but it was because of my role and reputation in the food industry that actually started opening up these opportunities that I didn't even know were possible. So a lot of you guys may know me from the Michelin Guide, and I created the guide's popular column, Eating Off Duty. So it's where I interview celebrated chefs about what they're eating at home in their kitchens, which I think given the times that we're in, we're going to be seeing 
um, a lot more of, you know, I'm taking, I'm turning the column into a book. Um, so I would love to like reach out wow. to more chefs to, yeah, to reach out to more chefs to figure out, you know, what more chefs are eating and making at home. So I started that for Michelin Guide, you know, covering other subjects like food and wine pairings. I write for Thrillist and the food columnist over at Pure Wow. And, you know, it was, it was really a, an article on Refinery29 that put a spotlight on me. And people were wondering, well, how, how do you make it on your own as a food writer? You know, I've never been on staff at a publication. I've always been independent. And that, that's pretty tricky. You know, in order to do what I had to do, I had to diversify. Um, and so in tandem, you know, as I grew in the food media, it, like in food and media industry, people started reaching out to me, brands and companies to consult for them privately and, you know, consult for their social media, consult on their brand communication. And so from that was born a private comms agency, you know, where I do brand copywriting. So that was like one side of the house that I totally did not expect to happen. It was until people started approaching me and then the television network started approaching me as well. So hey, you didn't you actually know. go out looking for the TV. The TV came to you. The TV came to me. Do you know uh, how <laughs> rare that is? That is not normal. That is not normal, Marisol. That's not normal. TV doesn't usually I, come to I didn't to know you. that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's, I, it all just landed. It landed in my lap, so to speak. You know, the first couple television gigs that I did, one was like with Matt Damon and Water.org for his Ah, no big deal. Yeah. Matt Damon. Just Matt Damon. We're just going to start with Matt Damon. Where do we go from here? And, you know, then I, this uh, organization called the Spirits Network from NBTV reached out to me to host one of my currently active segments called United States of Spirits. And what's funny is, you know, it's, it's the only shoppable television network. So as you're watching my show, United States of Spirits or other incredible shows they have on there, you can actually shop what we're drinking, which is pretty fun. And, um, and then pretty soon thereafter, MSG Networks reached out to me. And when they reached out to me, I was like, you know, I'm not like a sports person. You know, I follow English Premier League, you know, Tottenham Hotspurs fan. But I was like, are you sure you're talking to the right person? And, you know, we actually shot a show with my friend, Jeremy Jacobo at the Brunch Boys, who's my co-host. It's called Driven to Dine. And it's where we explored um, incredible restaurants across New York City that are, you know, within, you know, reasonable distance of Madison Square Garden, where you can go for a late night out. We even shot an episode with uh, John Wallace, a former Knicks player. Oh, I know. Well, I was a big Syracuse fan growing up. Yes. So, uh, yes, he was he was a he was a, a big time uh, Syracuse orange man when, when I yeah. guess he was an orange man. Now it's orange. But um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm curious, how many episodes of that did you shoot? Because obviously with a, uh, now a show like that, I guess it can go one of two ways. You could it could be, you know, obviously you're shooting in advance, but it could be continually shot or you could can a bunch of episodes and then release them one after the other. Were you shooting to just put it all in the can or just sort of was it was it intended to be like sort of a weekly thing where you were shooting a few weeks in advance and it was airing every week? Exactly. So we we shot like the first five episodes in a batch and it was supposed to air during, you know, NHL, NBA halftime show. MSG shorts and the post games. But when the, you know, very unfortunately, when the seasons got canceled, so did, you know, the show is put on pause because it, you know, specific airing segment times, but also because of the condition that restaurants are in right now, who knows if something that we shot 
will even be around. Exactly. See, that's that's the challenge, right? Like local TV versus I mean, I guess MSG is more than local. It it does air beyond New York, but it it's it's intended sort of for a local audience. It's a New York based show. And that was the thing with Restaurant Hunter. When I did Restaurant Hunter um for, for Fios One News was obviously I had to worry about things like does the restaurant still exist? Right. You know, can can people still go to the restaurant? You know, there were segments I had to pull because we shot four weeks out where sometimes a restaurant would close before it aired. And I'm like, I can't air this. Like people can't go to it. Whereas, you know, I think if you're a guy Fietti and, and you're airing a national show, I don't know if you worry about that as much. Cause you see a lot of those shows in re-airs, like, you know, where, yeah. you know, some of those places are probably closed. Um, but in the case of a show like yours, like, I think that's interesting that they decided to kind of hold off for that reason. I guess that's sort of the local versus national thing, because a lot of people are actually looking for that content. Now they're looking for that escapism. Like, Oh, remember what it was like to be at a restaurant. Oh, totally. It's, it's also, I think they did it out of respect for the restaurants. That makes sense. Considering, you know, Hey, what's also the point of showing something, you know, showing something that might not exist, you know, in a couple of months, you know, Rather than, and this is kind of where I myself have pivoted in terms of, you know, my role in food media and my role in television, just like restaurants have had to pivot from, you know, brick and mortar, dine in traffic to takeout and delivery, becoming grocery stores um, as we reopen potential, you know, plexiglass dining. Restaurants are reinventing themselves. And, you know, on that same front for myself in media, I've had to reinvent myself. This has made me realize, you know, like I want to be a food media activists during this time because what's the point about you know talking about a beautiful 12 course meal if a that restaurant's not going to exist and like be somewhere down the supply chain like someone is getting hurt you know people you know everyone around us is affected by this so i've actually started writing more about the people and the economics behind food again the way that i never intended to do any like type of social media influencer work Never you you use that word again, post. influencer. I'm curious about that. Like, yeah. do you, well, because it's a loaded word. I'm curious. Do totally. you consider yourself an influencer? Is that a title you use for yourself? That is the title other people have given unto me. Okay. I, I personally would never, you know, there, there are lists that I'm on that's like, you know, Refinery29, for example, like, oh, at Marisol Salazar, one of the top NYC influencers to, mm. to follow. Zagat named me one of their top you know, 100, um, food accounts to follow, you know, I'm, I'm a member of, um, this influencer, like nominated thing from pure wow, from tasting table. Again, it's never something I sought out. It was something like people approached me and they said, okay, we, we think you're influential and you have value. And for everybody, I think you're only so much influential and valuable as someone tells you, you are, but that isn't to say the work that you do is invaluable just because no one has labeled it. So, um, it's really interesting because you, I, I called you at the beginning of this a Renaissance woman, which you are. You wear a lot of hats, but it, the lines are really blurring when you look at media in general, but especially food media, because you know you, you're you wear a journalist hat sometimes, where you're doing, you know, like here are the facts, and you're interviewing sources, and you're doing that, and then you're also doing marketing and brand stuff, which is a completely different side of things. But yeah. then you're also now using the word food activist. It's a lot of things. And, you know, it's such a, I don't know. I don't know what what that means in terms of where we are with things. Is it that we have to be doing a lot of things? Should we be doing a lot of things? I don't know. 
I, I think in order to survive, and we're really talking about survival right now, we will have to. You know, restaurants are doing it themselves too. You see like, okay, you know, a restaurant, let's say like Que Fico, or, you know, it's doing delivery and takeout. It's doing, you know, they're turning into a grocery store. You know, restaurants are turning into community spaces. They're trying to diversify all sides of their business model, which was dependent upon dining for revenue. They have to diversify in order to stay alive and come through this. And, you know, people in media as well have to diversify media influencers. We have to diversify too, if we're going to make it through as well. Like I'm sure you're aware of, you know, every single week there's massive layoffs from some of the most prominent media companies, you know, across the country, Condé Nast, you know, Vox, you know, a lot of amazing people over at Vice and like, these are the nationals. This is not even counting, you know, the regionals, you know, I just heard again, the Atlantic had to lay off a bunch of its staff. So what do you do when you're an out of work editor competing in an already oversaturated market? How do you stand out? And not even how do you stand out? How do you diversify yourself so you can support yourself? You have to be this like slash, this gig slash worker. It's not like, okay, I'm just a writer. It's not, I'm a writer slash social media influencer slash this to make yourself more marketable. That's what, that's what writers are going to have to do now. Media is going to have to diversify itself. Well, here on Hot Takes on a Plate, our listeners get to eavesdrop on the ultimate food fights as I debate my culinary world friends and other eating enthusiasts in their areas of expertise. And since you dabble in so many things, Maricel, I think the best label for you in terms of what we should be discussing is food personality. Does that work for you, food personality? You know what, Rob? I actually love that. (laughs) Okay, good, good. So I want to throw some hot takes your way that have to do with all the many layers of that. And your job is to tell me I'm right, why I'm right. Oh, of course you're going to tell okay. me I'm right. Tell me why I'm right or tell me why I'm wrong. Okay? Cool. Okay. So the, the first one has to do with influencers, that term influencers. Now, yeah. influencers, some people get assigned that because they have big followings on social media like yourself. Other people, it, the title really, to me, when I think of influencers, it's it's somebody who is marketing on a social media platform. They are working hand-in-hand hand with restaurants to promote their goods. They are basically selling stuff. And in the face of COVID, I think influencers are in big-time trouble, and I am okay with that. I am totally 100% okay with that. We have too many of them. 95% of them are terrible parasites. They prey on restaurants. They're Mm -hmm. looking for free food. They're looking for money from restaurants. And quite frankly, I don't think restaurants always get the return on investment they think they're going to get from influencers. I think that it's, it's, I think the public is starting to catch on that, you know, these pretty pictures, it's not what they think it is. It's not just somebody who's going out to eat. They're getting paid to do it. It's an advertisement. Mm -hmm. It's another form of advertising, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But right now, restaurants don't have a budget for this kind of thing. They don't have a right. budget for anything. anything. And and I think we're also learning that, I'm sorry, these influencers, they're not the most creative people on earth. Again, 95%. There are some that know what they're doing, that are smart, that are probably doing pro bono work for restaurants right now, and I commend them for that. But there's a lot of them out there, a lot of them that are just looking for a free ride, and they're not the most... The, the, without... Instagram as a mm-hmm. platform, they are left with nothing. They don't have another skill. It's not like you where you can write and you can do all these yeah. other things. They don't have another skill. 
and I think they're going to get exposed and I'm okay with that. Let, let, mm-hmm. let them go away. And the ones that are left probably deserve to be left. Tell me I'm right. Tell me I'm wrong. I, I agree and disagree with you both okay. at the same time. So, you know, on just like a, a macro level, you know, there's, you know, I think it's 71% of consumers. It was through WD magazine, 71% of consumers. Are oh, likely bringing to buy. facts right off the oh. bat. I love this. Oh boy. Yeah. I'm a journalist. They're likely to buy products or services based on social media referrals. You know, it's social media ads and, you know, influencers are new television commercials. It's all about subconscious repetition. The more you see it, the more you believe it to be worthwhile or valuable. Whether or not the person who is, you know, touting it or publicizing actually has any certification or degree or whatever, you know, it is, it is pure marketing. You know, there are many companies and huge brands that rely upon social media influencers in order to increase the dine-in traffic and revenue flow to their business. Okay, well, what happens when that dine-in traffic disappears? Okay, there's no need for social media influencers because what influence do they have in a world where, you know, you can't even dine in at a restaurant or even take a photo because as a consumer, you also want to be there and somehow be in their shoes to fulfill this like cheesy dream pool you know, and that isn't to say there's a bunch of influencers, big ones that I know that work really hard, who are talented, who have incredible, you know, video editing skills, you know, have gone on to make, you know, incredibly hilarious podcasts, like my co-host of my show, um, Jeremy Jakobowitz. He's very talented. He actually comes from a food background, you know, a former PA for Food Network. Um, And again, that's the 5%. I'm not not lumping them all together. Correct. But you are not wrong in the sense of, you know, there are other influencers who are in it from a free meal. Like for example, there's this article on medium and I can shoot it to you later. You know, they quoted that restaurant influence specific to our industry, like raked in something like $70,000 a year in free food, $70,000. Like that number is somebody's salary. And that's a good one too, you know? And Again, we have to also ask ourselves as consumers, like, why do I believe in this influencers? What's the credibility? What is his or her background? Like, exactly. did you bother to check them exactly. out on LinkedIn? <laughs> I have seen, I saw an influencer one time, I swear to you, was posting pictures of their first ever Indian meal and making comments about how after eating at one Indian buffet, determining they don't like Indian food because all the food is mushy. Now, 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 hold on. Just let that like sit for a second on, on on the top of your head. It's like you've exposed yourself for how little you know about food right there. Correct. Just right there. I had another influencer one time posting about their first experience with oysters. If your first experience with oysters is during your actual eating job, you need to eat a little more before you get an eating job. Like, I'm right. just saying, like, exactly. stop. I mean, my, my issue, another issue I have, you, so the point you made about how that repetition leads to brand awareness. Yes, but that's also my problem with influencers because who has the Mm -hmm. budget for influencers? It's not the small mom and pops. It's the bigger restaurants. It's the power players. And all that's doing is perpetuating that cycle where you create a less diverse dining scene where the haves have more and the have-nots get left to the wayside. And, you know, a restaurant can promote itself on Instagram. It doesn't need an influencer. It doesn't need some 22-year-old who's never eaten a thing. It just doesn't. It it can do it itself. And I think that creates a more equitable dining scene. I think so, too. But, you know, also on the same, like on the other hand, I got this question asked recently recently. 
someone said, Hey, Marisol, how do you choose, you know, in this sea of restaurants and products and people, you know, I get pitched hundreds of emails every day, right about this, or do you want to try this wine or this and that? They asked me, how do you choose what to write about? And again, that's, Again, you know, as media, sometimes we like to, you know, follow the ambulance sirens and say, you know, run after a chef or a restaurant that's so hot right now because it's kind of easy layup and it's like, oh, this is hot. We should write about what's hot. So we're, we know what's hot and everybody thinks we know what's hot. You know, it's really tough to actually write about or take photos of. It's the echo chamber. Yeah. It's how do you, who's writing about independent restaurants, the small ones that don't have a name for themselves, who aren't so hot, you know, because even as food media, you get cozy with bigger names and the more you're also associated with the bigger name, the bigger your profile gets too. It's all about association. I'm guilty as charged. I've done episodes of Restaurant Hunter in the past where it was like, we got big guests and that made us look good. And it was something we could brag about. But honestly, I didn't always get that as much joy out of that. You know, the, the, the lasting relationships are not from that. I mean, I, I I can think of times where we aimed for the moon and the stars with a restaurant group and we didn't land the big head person. We land the person who's actually doing the work that day. Imagine that. And over time, my mantra became, I don't want the the head person if it's a group like that. I want the person who's doing the everyday work because that's if you're going to go to that restaurant, that's who you're going to see. Yeah. You actually have just like totally hit the nail on like something that I've been working on like in, in media, like, I think we have a huge likability problem. And it's that we're scared sometimes to write about things that are actually important for fear that, you know, people not don't necessarily want to hear it, even if it's important, or it's not sexy enough. Um, you know, and something that I've pivoted towards is, you know, primarily, like, you know, as I can, I like to profile and write about, you know, people of color, write about women doing incredible things, you know, even on the mission level, or the Bib Gourmand level, or just outside you know, the work that I do for the Michelin Guide. Um, right now I'm writing a story about La Mordada, which is a Oaxacan restaurant in the Bronx that is owned and operated by an undocumented family. Like that's kind of scary to write because it's like, you know, they're taking a risk talking to me. I'm taking a risk talking to them because like, you know, I'm putting all of my, you know, journalistic and like media profile or reputation on the line, but you know what? It feels right. Like it's exactly, and that's why I also said like slash activist, because like it's, this has been a turning point where like, you know, influencers, if you want to stay relevant, anybody in media wants to stay relevant, you have to pivot. But can you be a journalist and an activist simultaneously? Maybe that's, I asked the question because I come from a certain generation where you're not allowed to have an opinion when you're reporting. And we're seeing a, right. a shift right now where reporting does have bias. And and I don't say that in a way to say totally. the reporting is inaccurate. I think you can have bias and still be accurate. You can report things from an angle as long and still stick to facts. But yes, totally. sometimes there is a way to present facts on both sides with 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 a bias. And I, I, are, are those things? Are we are are the, are you allowed to be a journalist and an activist? I don't I don't really know. I mean, I'm I'm a little bit I old school so. like that. I don't know. I don't I know. Think, I think so. And like, and this is just a bigger question for media. I think like we all know that certain news outlets and networks, you know, they lean, they lean towards, you know, being conservative, or they lean towards being liberal, we all know who they are. So let's just admit it and say like, hey, I'm a liberal leaning news network, putting out there my bias, but you can accurately 
now knowing that, that you've disclosed that, you also like have kind of like given the reader or the viewer, their listener, the grain of salt that they needed and that they kind of knew about anyways. So let's just disclose it. Uh, That's true. Let's be real with people. Look, you're, you're, you're being honest with your audience and they can take it or leave it. I mean, I think everybody, I think the reason why people respected Anthony Bourdain so much is because you knew where he stood on things, but you also knew he was fair. You know, and I think by yeah. by disclosing his opinions, it kind of made him more fair in a way. And and it, it, I don't know, it was kind of interesting. And I think that actually segues to the next thing I wanted to throw at you, the next hot take, which is food personalities, mm. what we're going to expect from them now going forward, coming out of this whole COVID thing. At some point, we're going to come out of it. And not that there aren't food personalities now, clearly they are, but they're not, the food personalities aren't really allowed to do what they've been doing forever right, right. now. They're like things are sort of on a weird pause. You know, it's, it's people cooking in their kitchens and things like that. Someday we're going to go back to food personalities, visiting restaurants. We're going to go back to whatever medium it is, TV or, or online or whatever travel log type shows. And I think if you're going to be a food personality coming out of this, I think we're going to expect our food personalities to have a little bit more soul going forward. I think you need substance as much as style. I think there needs to be a little bit more exploration of people, more storytelling, the the soul of it. Um, I think we were already shifting to more culture going with the food and not just simple dump and stir and here's the recipe and what are you eating and food porn and all that. But I think beyond just the culture, I think people want to connect with humans and they want those stories. And I think if you're just working at this on a surface level of yum yums and look at the food (laughs) porn, I, I just don't think. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe that's my bias. Maybe that's just um, my this taste. This is the hot take. I agree with you a hundred percent on, you know, who, who we are as chefs, restaurateurs, small business owners, just as people right now, who we are during a pandemic like this is going to solidify who we are coming out of it. And people won't forget, you know, like not to, you know, stir the pot with a famous food writer who's currently on leave that we all know, but you know, Right now, it's really about having appreciation versus appropriation and that fine line, stating that you know and you appreciate how and where your food comes from, down, and that's down to the culture or down to the hands that are making it. Like what you said, you when you were working on your television show on Fios, you got in cozy with the people who are back of house. That's who I'm turning to right now in terms of like my coverage. And this is where I think you can also be both an activist and a journalist is in in the sense of like, you know, I'm choosing, I have been given a position in the media to shine the spotlight on someone whose voice, who was previously voiceless, I'm giving them a voice. This is my opportunity to tell their story. And that's how I see activism. It's like, you know what, instead of for me chasing what's so hot right now, I'm going to chase after the people who are such an invaluable part of our restaurant industry and the food supply and get their take on it. Because like without that piece, like the whole industry is broken without them. So why does it even matter about, you know, the hot, sexy people at the top, you know, fine dining and who's given back their PPP, especially if we don't even take a look at the people who are on the opposite of the spectrum, who we, who we give no thought at all. You did, and I love that. Um, but you know, for me, also like being Latina, like I'm an immigrant. I'm Latina. A lot of the people working back of house, we speak the same language. It's all our first language. 
So it's, it's extra important to me to shine the light on people. You know, we come from similar countries, maybe the same country. That's why I think the new food personality, the new, the new influencers, the new food celebrities are going to be activists in a sense. Cause I think we're so less concerned with the food than now more the people itself. And this is where I kind of go back and forth with the whole activist thing, because on one mm-hmm. hand, we are in such a fragmented media landscape where I think you can sort of push boundaries in a way you couldn't because you don't have to appeal to everyone. You have to appeal to your niche. So you find your niche, you appeal to it, you get a loyal fan base and away you go. And so in that case, it works. When I was doing my show, you know, my audience was very broad. It was not, I was on a news channel that was not Mm. a, a, an, you know, a a biased news channel, if you will. It was a just sort of, it was a local channel. And so my audience was, I would say probably from all political backgrounds, all races, all you name it. So I was actually trying to appeal to the broadest group of people. And I think about when I would tell stories that involve culture or even somebody's experience that maybe other people couldn't maybe relate to. And I, tr- I tried to tell it in just here are the facts. I didn't try to spell right. it out. And, and cause I think, you know, I think about one of my favorite stories I ever told, it was this, um, this chef who opened up a Persian restaurant on long Island and he was, mm-hmm. he was born in the States. And mm-hmm. then when he was two, he and his family moved back to Iran and okay. his, his parents were students here. And he lived there up until he was, I forget what age, he was an adult. And then he said, I want to go back to the States. So he came back here. Um, And so he had a citizenship, you know, he was born here, but um, he didn't know Mm -hmm. anyone and he didn't speak the language. And he slept on park benches for a few weeks and started teaching himself English and worked some different jobs and then eventually decided to open a restaurant and he ended up having two restaurants. And he's like, he became such an integral part of his community. And I'm going like, I don't feel like I need to color this at all. Like Mm -hmm. I can present, here's this story and here are just the facts and look at this amazing person. And if you can't, I almost feel like if I color the story, mm-hmm. somebody who maybe is anti-immigrant won't hear the story. You know what I'm right. saying? Like if I just show you the story, you might hear it and maybe it'll resonate in a way that it wouldn't resonate if somebody was more activisty. Does that make sense? Like, I don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I mean, also in the sense of being an activist is also your likability factor. And if people like you, they will listen to what you have to say, or at least be open to the message. So I think it's it's presenting, you know, whatever it is or whomever you're trying to support in a positive, likable fashion, which is it's it's a very tricky thing to do. It's like you're walking on eggshells. But I do think food media has a huge likability problem, and we're scared. We're scared to talk about what's important because we're afraid of not being liked. Because what that actually means in terms of like economics of media in general. If your consumers don't like you and necessarily like, oh, you know, I don't want to hear about this, that means your impressions and your reach go down. And if your impressions and reach go down, then, you know, the the advertisements that you're selling through your website, which is what generates, you know, the revenue to keep all these people employed, that goes down too. So you're making less in advertising dollars and that's what you're selling yourself on. You know, food media and media in general already like restaurants operates on such slim razor thin margins, you know? 
So we have to keep in mind, you know, when I'm writing stories, I'm told, hey, keep in mind SEO or think of what, what's going to make this clickable. That's already, you know, inherent bias in and of itself. So what if we just admit like, okay, you know what, maybe if we're not trying to be, we can try to be likable, present our case and the support of what we do. It's an art, but I think it's something we should strive to achieve because if we're not striving to achieve telling stories that actually matter, then nothing else matters anymore. And I want to bring up Pete Wells, for example, you know, Pete Wells recently said in an article in the counter by Jesse Hirsch, you know, to the, something to the effect of like, you know, this, this is going to be awkward for journalists to pivot from being impartial to either being a cheerleader for the food industry or as he would like it to remain, you know, being agnostic. And, you know, I think someone like Pete Wells can say that because it's Pete Wells. For everybody else who is not Pete Wells, like you have to make a choice. You know, are you going to be a wallflower or are you going to say something? You know, but I think it's complicated, right? Because on one hand, I think you can support the industry because, look, look, we've all made friends doing our jobs and I don't want to see people's restaurants fail. And so in in that essence, I want to be a cheerleader. I want to prop restaurants up. I want to prop these people up. I want to prop their employees up. On the other hand, sometimes you're going to see stuff that's not pretty that, you know, these restaurants are also not infallible and you have to be willing to call people out. The minute you lose that ability because you're friends with everybody and you don't want to hurt feelings, you might as well just give up the job, you know, like just, just give it up. Like, cause now you're, you are a marketer, you're not a journalist. And so you have to have that bravery to say, wait a second, what did I, and look, it's, it's shades of gray. There are restaurant groups that I respect that are not always doing everything right. You know? Right. Absolutely. And I do, I do 100% agree to your, you know, to what you just said. It's, you know, there's being impartial, but like, like you would call out and check any friends. Sometimes we need to check ourselves, you know, as food media and some of the practices that we're doing, which is why, like in some crazy sense, I think because of this, you know, breakdown that we're going through as a restaurant industry, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for growth and doing things right and treating people fairly and equitably along all parts of the restaurant, you know, supply chain. But again, how does that start? You know, like we also need to write and publish these stories if we're going to enact any change. Because again, being media, like I'm given, and you know, you too, like we're given this like weird and sometimes awesome power to affect change. And how can we affect change? It's by making sure like if a story comes our way, that's actually really important trying our best to push it out there, like push it upwards to our editors or anyone who might listen. Cause you know, maybe at the end of the day, like, yeah, I love, you know, I love Michelin God and I love being known as this, you know, writer alongside this prestigious publication, but like in my bones, it's okay. What did I do with, what did I do with this influence? And that to me is being a real influencer. It's taking any voice that I have and using it appropriately to help somebody. Oh, not totally. just to get a thousand likes on a photo. And look, I think I think to the the point about cheerleading, that it can be one of the fun things about our, our jobs is that if we find a restaurant or a story that's amazing, it's okay to sound the alarm and say, hey, everybody, you need to go there. You need to yeah. go, f- because we're if, if we're doing it from a place that's not, biased because you know 
again, like if somebody's being paid, right? But if we're doing right. it because because from an unbiased place of I discovered this and it's freaking amazing. I do it all the time. There are restaurants I can't stop talking about because they're yeah. so good. And I and it feels good to 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 let people know that because it's like you're yeah. sharing something, especially the ones that don't get as much publicity, the ones yeah. that haven't already blown up to be that one who's kind of pushing that place to the forefront before it blows up. That's fun. It's so it's fun. It's like that band in high school that yes. you, you love, but you don't want anyone to know about because it's so good. But then you kind of wish people know about it. So they, they know it's so good. Exactly. That was, that was Muse for me before Muse became big. I thought <laughs> I was the only one in the world that knew about Muse. And then, you know, you well, listen, <laughs> I, th I, I think at the end of the day, I think it's it, the idea of having fun with food and having fun with with entertaining people and being a personality while also advocating for things that are right and telling yeah. honest stories that people need to hear. They're not exclusive. You can you can totally. do both. And I think that's one of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast. Some podcasts are just silly and some are more yeah. serious. And and I think if you're somebody who's here for the silly, well, I've got a catalog of silly. And if you're someone <laughs> who's here for more serious, we'll do that too, you know? And, Absolutely. and I never envisioned this podcast being as political as it's been when I launched it. Cause I kind of wanted it to just be fun. Um, but I think you're right fun. now everything is political. We can't help it. It's all there. Right. And I think, you know, look, it's just, it is what it is. It is what it is. Right. It is I never is. considered myself a political person ever. You know, I would shy away from it. And honestly, it's because of because of this pandemic that and I don't know if it was like, oh, I told myself I had to be or it just naturally came through. But, you know, I really just started advocating, you know, if we want to use a softer word than activism, it's advocating and it's advocating for the restaurant industry. Well, listen, Marisol, I said it at the beginning of our conversation. You're a renaissance woman. I think what you've done with your career, whether it was unintentional or not, uh, is smart. <laughs> I think right now in media in general, you cannot put all your eggs in one basket. I think that is career suicide. Um, I have learned that personally because I, I, for years, advocated to myself and to others, you can't put your eggs in one basket. And I totally. tend to be a put my head down kind of person. And, and I did that with a TV show where I just put my head down and grinded it out. And uh, now I kind of wish I had diver diversified sooner, if you will. Um, so, so everybody, if you want a career in food media, uh, follow Maricel's lead, diversify your portfolio. Totally. Uh, what's the Instagram again? It's at Maricel M. Salazar. Maricel M. Salazar, and you can read her in Michelin Guide and Michelin website. What's the website? It's um, guide.michelin.com. Awesome. Or is it, awesome. Wait, let, me, let me make sure I actually have that. Yeah, it's guide.michelin.com. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, the TV stuff will, will come out soon, the, the MSG stuff, yeah. hopefully, when we get out of uh, this whole situation. Thank you so much for coming on, Maricel. And if this is your first time tuning in, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast listening app of choice. And if you like what you heard, please rate us. Again, five stars, of course. You can leave a comment as well and share with your friends. And if you want to get in touch with me personally, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Rob Patron TV. Hot Takes on a Plate is part of the Believe Podcast Network. That's B-L-E-A-V. You can find them at B-L-E-A-V.com. I'm Rob Patron. Till next time. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. 
Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.